Good morning. I have the pleasure today of reading the scriptures. I have two readings today, even better. The first reading is from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one, of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, just have you, you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The second reading is from the Good News according to Matthew, chapter 21, beginning at verse 23. When Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven or was it in human origin? And they argued with one another, Hmm, if we say, from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say, of human origin, we are afraid of the crowd, for all regard John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? A man has two sons. He went to the first and said, 
Son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. The father went to the second and said the same, and he answered, I will go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him, and even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. So I will introduce our guest speaker for, guest preacher for uh, this morning. It's actually afternoon where he is preaching from because he's preaching from Toronto, Ontario. Uh, we have Morgan Bell, who is a graduate of, uh, of Emmanuel College at the University of Toronto, the United Church of Canada Seminary there. But he has also decided to take up the, the task of, uh, of doctrine in the church. And he's currently doing his PhD. Or is it a THD, Morgan? THD. PhD, yeah, PhD, um, at uh, at Emmanuel, um, and working on uh, working with uh, one of my favorite theologians, who I've named many times, uh, the theologian uh, Karl Barth, um, and uh, Morgan is a lifelong uh, United Church person, and we are just uh, deeply grateful to have him. He was also our uh, student, Christopher Slusar's roommate for a very short time. And <laughs> I don't know if it was Morgan's fault or Christopher's fault. I think it was Christopher's fault. Um, but uh, but uh, we are uh, truly pleased to have Morgan uh, preach for us. And uh, I, will, I will hand it over to Morgan. Yeah, thanks for that generous introduction, Ryan. And it's an enormous delight to be here with you good folks this morning. So as we prepare to hear the word of God in preaching, let us bow our heads in prayer. <clears throat> Come, Holy Spirit, come as a fire and burn, come as a wind and cleanse, convict, convert, and consecrate our hearts to our great good and to your great glory. Amen. Two brothers walk into a vineyard. No, it's, it's not a joke. It's the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Two brothers walk into this vineyard and their dad says, all right, boys, uh, I got some work I need you to do today. So the father turns to the first son and says, all right, I need you to start go, uh, getting rid of those dead vines over there. All right. And then he turns to the other son and he goes, I, I know this sucks, but I actually really need you to go clean out the wine press so that we can get ready for the harvest next week. The first son, model child that he is, he beams at his father and he goes, sure, daddy. And he whistles and he skips down the path toward the vineyard gate. But as soon as the father turns his back to go muddle, mutter around and putter in the garage, son A beelines it for the local bar so he can go meet his buddies. 
Now, the second son is absolutely livid, outraged that he has been given the disgusting task of cleaning out the sludge from last year's harvest that's had time to soak in its own juices. It's gross. So he barks back at his father, no way, dad, you do it. I'm sure anyone who is a parent here has heard something similar. But as the second son fumes, paces in the back 40 on the farm, he realizes that he loves his dad. And even though he's angry, he can't let the old man do all this work on his own. So grudgingly, he plods back to the vineyard and starts scraping grape sludge from the wine press. Which of the two did the will of the father? Jesus asks those learning at his feet. And like a kindergarten class the crowd chimes in the son who actually did the work and jesus affirms them he goes very good you're right kiddos and i tell you truly that those folks who work at the canadian revenue agency and the sex workers are getting into the kingdom of god ahead of you um the word of the lord thanks be to god i guess I mean, come on, we're Protestants. We're those theological heirs of the Reformation. We, we think that we are saved solely by the grace of the Lord God rather than any works that we could ever hope to perform. So this parable makes us a bit antsy. Be the hardworking son, go to heaven. Be a little weasel, back of the line. Now, to be fair, we're also United Church, and we're the folks who never met a moral exhortation that we didn't like. So is that what we're presented with here? A moral exhortation, a demand. A demand that if we're gonna be the citizens of the kingdom of God, we've gotta shape up or have the door slammed in our face. Now we might look to the other reading to, to get a little bit of reassurance, right? Paul's letter to the Philippians. But we don't seem to get much reassurance there. No, we hear later in the letter that Euodia and Syntyche are the matriarchs of the church in far-flung Philippi, and it's not exactly clear why, but they're at each other's throats. The Philippians are performing that most ancient and sacred Christian practice and tradition, fighting with each other. And while Paul uses honey rather than vinegar in this instance, his letter is a plea for the Philippians to get their act together. Be of the same mind in the Lord. Paul writes, yeah, be of the same mind, have the same love, be in agreement. Don't be selfish, be humble, regard everyone else as better than you are. Forget yourself, look after your neighbor's needs. That's a tall order. How are we supposed to do that? The Philippians might have asked. Well, Paul responds by quoting one of their beloved hymns. He goes, you want to know how to do this? Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. You know, the one who was God, but became a human, became a slave, became a crucified wretch. Be like that. Be like the one whom God exalted, gave the name above all names, so that at the name of Jesus, all creatures, everyone will bow and kneel and confess him as Lord to the glory of the Father. Oh, well, if that's all we're supposed to do, Paul, our Protestant senses are still tingly here. Just be like Jesus. Get out there. Be a doormat. Get crucified. And then you'll have godly exaltation and peace in your community. 
Paul certainly knew how to pack a letter. Friends, it is so easy to read the good news of God as a list of moral demands on our life. We're transactional beings, after all, and we live in a transactional world. If I do this, then you'll do that. If I pay X, you'll give me Y. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. I go to work in the vineyard. God grants me salvation. So it is that we often read our Bibles in what I would call an imitational mode. No, too often we don't dwell in the world of Scripture to learn what God has done, to hear the Lord speak to us now, to be revived by the promises of the good God. No, no, we prefer to mine the living word for bland moral prescriptions and ethical instructions for living so that we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We can earn our own gold stars. We long to make ourselves righteous, to strive for our own moral goodness, to save ourselves. But friends, I put it to you that this is not what the Spirit is saying to the church. It might seem a weird question, but were you ever yelled at by your parents as a child? I, I'm sure you were. But how many of you, when you got doing something inappropriate in front of a younger sibling, like teaching them to burp the alphabet or something like that, were told something along these lines, hey, you're an example to your little sister. Now act like it, right? How many of you called home during your first semester away at college because you had to ask for money because you blew it all on booze and you were told, aren't you a student? Act like it. Friends, this is the sort of gospel logic we are being schooled in this morning. We aren't in the first instance being told to scale the heights of moral behavior to act like Jesus. No, we are being told to be what we already are. The Lord God is proclaiming to us that in Jesus Christ, the true God has humbled himself for our sake and become the true human. We are hearing the explosive news at the center of the saving truth we confess as Christians. That in Jesus Christ, the one who became human was crucified and has risen. Humanity has already become new. What happened to Jesus has happened for all, for he was the human being. The new human has already been created. We aren't, in the, we aren't first and foremost being told to act like Jesus, the model son of the vine grower, the subject of the gorgeous Philippian hymn. No, it is revealed to us that in him we are already new. You are already Christians. Now act like it. Be who you already are in Christ Jesus. This past week, I finally got around to doing something that I've been hoping to do for a while. I watched uh, Steven Spielberg's Schindler's List. Now at the center of that drama is the extravagantly wealthy Oscar Schindler a German industrialist, a prominent member of the Nazi party. Now he buys a factory in Poland and then he arranges for Jewish slave labor to build his empire even larger. 
He's a philanderer, an alcoholic, a Machiavellian businessman, and cool, pragmatic sense guides his life. Early on in the movie, he tells his accountant something his father was fond of saying. You need three things in life, a good doctor, a forgiving priest, and a clever accountant. The first two I've never had much use for, he says. And that's it. We don't need health. We don't need the assurance of God. Rather, money, sex, power, upward mobility, those are the values that shape Schindler's mind. But then he's given a front row seat to the horror of the Holocaust. He witnesses the liquidation of the Krakow ghetto. He has dealings with the sadistic commandant of the local concentration camp. He builds relationships with his Jewish workers and slowly over the course of a three hour movie, we see Schindler become frantic. Frantic to save as many Jews, as many people, as many lives as possible from the Nazis under the guise of needing their essential work. He is frantic to save as many as possible from the inevitable death at the end of the railroad tracks. He bankrupts himself to save just one more life. And toward the end of the film, there's this curious scene. The end of the war has been announced, and despite his righteous deeds, Schindler is still a member of the Nazi party and a war profiteer. He has to flee. But before his departure, he assembles all his workers to address them for a final time. He asks that they all observe three minutes, three minutes to remember those lost in this human monstrosity. And as the rabbi among them intones the mourner's Kaddish, the purportedly lapsed Catholic Schindler, the man who has no need for forgiving priests, marks himself with the sign of the cross and bows his head in prayer. Now we are right to laud Schindler for his righteous deeds. He's the only member of the Nazi party to be buried on Mount Zion, the mountain of the Lord. He's declared righteous among the nation by the people of Israel. But is his righteousness simply the product of a playboy Nazi turned saint by his own resources? Is he righteous because by sheer force of will, he overcame indifference to human suffering and acted heroically? That doesn't seem to be the case. No, we don't witness a cataclysmic moral epiphany anywhere. Gradually, Schindler had his chest ripped open, torn open, his heart shattered bit by bit by bit by the indescribable evil before his eyes. His whole life, his entire sense of self was crucified. And Schindler died to a life of sin and was made alive to life in God. It turns out that the lapsed Catholic's baptism wasn't revoked by a bon vivant lifestyle. The Holy Spirit was busy at work conforming Schindler ever more to the crucified Christ in whom he had his true humanity. Schindler remembered, even if unaware or unnamed, that he was a new creation in Jesus Christ and acted accordingly. Schindler crossed his body, 
because it was a body made new through the cross. Christians don't pull themselves up by their bootstraps. We're not instructed to figure out for ourselves how to be superhumans, how to be the model son. No, with fear and trembling, we confess that we have already died and been reborn. Children of God, those who inherit the family vineyard, siblings of Jesus Christ, sharers of his mind. We don't go it alone to build new lives. And I'm sorry for those of you who might be invested in self-help, but they can't do it for you either. No, we are given a new life entirely apart from our own strivings. No, we don't become Christians through works. We become Christians through baptism. Think about it. It's curious. The first thing the church does when someone desires to follow Jesus is to kill them. That's right. Whether it's a baby swaddled in their great-grandmother's baptismal gown or someone who has come to faith toward the end of their days, the church prays that the Spirit will put them to death, that they will be plunged deep beneath the saving and living waters of baptism such that they may die to lives of sin and be made alive to life in God by God. We pray as a community that their chest will be split, torn open, and that hearts of stone may be re replaced by hearts of flesh and blood and warmth and compassion. Hearts that beat for God and beat for the world God died to save. We pray that they will remember that in this baptism they are children of God and they will act according to that unspeakable grace, that they will live like that's true. Friends, that is the type of gospel logic that we are being schooled in this morning. We aren't told to scale the heights of moral behavior to act like Jesus. No, the Lord God is proclaiming to us that Jesus Christ, the true God, has humbled himself for our sake and become the true human. And in the true son, we become true children of God. We don't set out to work in the father's vineyard because we fear for our place in the kingdom of God. No, we do that work because we recognize that we are already made beloved and obedient children. And we desire nothing more than to live like that is true. We don't have to go through cognitive behavioral therapy to have the same mind as Christ Jesus. We have already been given that mind in our baptism, and it is renewed and sharpened every time we hear the word of God afresh. Church, you are already the children who have said no to the demands of God and are brought still to participate in the joyful obedience of the true son who sets out to do the work of the father. You have already been granted the mind of Christ Jesus, who was humble in love, who died to save, who rose to recreate. You are already dead, dead to lives of sin and being reborn to new life in God by that chaos-taming, sin-scorching, life-giving Holy Spirit. So recognize who you are 
Embrace whose you are. Be grateful for what you are. You are children of God through Jesus Christ. Act like it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please join us in singing the words in 335. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess him, King of glory Strong as death, but with all.